Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. Have your Bibles, you're going to be turning to the Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 18, the church at Thyatira. We are in the Revelation, and we're in the churches of the Revelation. We're at the fourth of those. And the fourth of those churches is the church of Thyatira. And Thyatira is interesting because of all the churches, this, this has the longest letter to the most insignificant city. In fact, one of the historians of that day stated this, and for Thyatira and every other unimportant community. That's, that's the way the historian said. So if you're another unimportant community, such as Thyatira, receive the longest letter to this particular church. As far as the church age and what it represents, and I hope you have that chart, because it's pretty important today. The chart of the church age, we start with the apostolic age and went through the time of persecution, the time of the Caesars. Now we come to the fourth of those churches. It's called the dark ages of the church. And it's really the church that is apostate. Apostate or apostasy means a falling away. This is a period of time in history in the church, the established church, where there's a falling away from God. I remember where we were last time. Constantine had come into power and he'd become a supposed Christian and he made Christianity the national religion. The the church became established. Christianity became established. And in the midst of that, it began to uh, be uh, in high cotton, if you would say, we'd say in Mississippi. And and things were going great and they were popular and and there, there rose this power inside of the church. And in the midst of that, they're at a point of great danger. They're at a point of great danger because they're at a point of losing and leaving the Word of God. We don't have time to read the whole letter, so I want to just pick up and begin to read through that and see what it says. The first thing we've always shared with is how Jesus identifies himself. So listen to verse 18, what Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Remember the way that Jesus describes himself to each letter is pertinent to that particular letter, that particular time. The first thing he says here, he introduces himself as the son of God. In no other letter does he introduce himself as the son of God. Well, in this letter he does. And the reason that is, is because who he's about to deal with and what he's about to deal with in the letter. He's going to deal with a prophetess, he says, is named Jezebel. And Jezebel has led the church astray. In the midst of leading the church astray, it has basically happened because she has leading them in a direction and carrying them in a direction because she's a prophetess or a spokesman for God. When Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't say he's a spokesman for God. He's a prophet of God. He says, I'm the son of God. And if you want to put things in perspective, it's great to be a spokesman for God. It's better to be a son of God. Amen. And so he puts himself in a hierarchy that what he's saying and what he's about to say to do and the corrections he's about to make has far greater authority than any prophetess there might be. The second thing he describes about himself, he says he has the flaming fire. His eyes have the flaming fire. And that's the idea that the eyes of Jesus pierce far beyond what he sees on the outside. He doesn't see just on the outside, but he sees the very thoughts and intent of every heart. 
He says that down in about verse 23 when it says that he's going to be the one who judges and searches the minds and the hearts of the people. Jesus Christ looks on the inside first. It doesn't matter what you and I do on the outside. It doesn't matter how we try to impress him. He's always going to know the truth and he's always going to focus on who we are on the inside. And he's telling that church and he's telling anybody who would hear that I'm going to be piercing. My eyes are so deep. My eyes are aflame that I'll pierce to know your very heart. Final thing he describes himself, he says he has the feet. He has the feet like burnished bronze. In chapter 1, whenever he described himself there, or John was describing him about that, he says the bronze or brass feet. And I shared with you that that that's a picture of the judgment of God or the wrath of God. On the outer court of the temple was where the altar of sacrifice was, and every instrument that was used in that altar of sacrifice was all made of bronze, not of gold. And bronze was a picture or instruments that were used in the judgment or the wrath of God. That altar of sacrifice is the judgment and the wrath of God. There is a payment for sin. And when those animals were killed and their blood was sprinkled and the altar burned them up, then it was all done to show that this is the punishment for sin. There is a payment or a punishment for sin. And you have to understand that's the wrath of God upon sin. What this is saying, Jesus says that I'm coming and I'm going to deal with judgment and with wrath. Now for some of us as believers, we kind of recoil from that. We don't like to talk about that. We'd rather talk about Jesus being full of love and mercy and kindness and grace. Amen? That's what we love for Jesus to be. But you also have to understand that Jesus is holy, he's righteous, he's judge, and he is a God of wrath. As much as he loves sinners, he hates sin. Because sin cost his son to die on a cross. Sin cost his his essence of creation and the ultimate creation man to be faltered and out of relationship with him which is what God intended for us to be God loves sinners but he hates sin and the wrath of God will come upon sin the son of God who sees deep within your soul who will be the judge and will bring forth wrath against sin and he always gives, if there is a word of commendation, he gives a word of commendation to the church. Here for Thyatira, there is a word of commendation. It's in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. That sounds like a pretty good church, amen? He said, I know about your service and I know about your love and I know about your faith and I know about your perseverance. And he says, that's not getting, you're not like Ephesus who's getting less and less as time goes on. But it seems as though you're getting more and more. Things seem like they're going good and you want to serve more and do more and everything else. But the problem with them is the same problem that Saul discovered back whenever he was king. You remember King Saul, don't you? King Saul at one time was given a command by God. The command was this, to go and to destroy the Amalekites, because of what they had done to the children of Israel. Well, Saul, when he goes to destroy the Amalekites, he decides that he would destroy all except the best. (laughs) He decided he would keep the best of what there was and that he would think that would be a good thing. And and he told the prophet, when the prophet said, what is the bleeding of the sheep I hear? Why is there something that's all supposed to be dead? He said, oh, we decided, or I decided, to bring the best to offer a sacrifice to God to offer a sacrifice, to do something good for God. Well, this is what the prophet said to him. 
Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, what he was basically saying is this. It doesn't matter how many activities you have, how much service you do, how much love supposedly you have, how much faith you walk in. If your life is not right and things in your fellowship are not right, it's not right. And what God wants is for you to be pure and holy and right and obedient rather than disobedient. So all of these things that you're doing and all of these things, they can be good and they would be good if your heart was right, if your fellowship was right. And that brings him to that word of correction. And here's the word of correction found in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. He said, this is what I have against you. You tolerate a prophetess in your midst whose name is Jezebel, and she is leading my people astray and causing them to do ungodly things. Now, probably in this particular church, there was a woman. I'd probably, I doubt that her name was Jezebel. It probably wasn't Jezebel, but he calls her Jezebel for a reason in just a minute. But there's probably maybe this woman personally who was teaching things and, and, and carrying out things and leading people to do certain things. And they were tolerating that instead of standing against that. But the real message is far greater than that. The real message has to do with who is Jezebel and who is this Jezebel. Well, most of you know in the Bible who Jezebel was. Matter of fact, Jezebel is such a wicked woman that nobody names their child Jezebel. I doubt this woman was even named Jezebel. We have our next grandchild coming in July. It's a little girl, and my kids were over last night and telling us what they were anticipating naming this little girl. It was not Jezebel. (laughs) If it had been Jezebel, I would have put my foot down. We're not naming her Jezebel. Nobody's going to name a little girl Jezebel because of how wicked Jezebel was. Who was Jezebel in the Bible? Well, if you remember, she was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she married the king of Israel. His name was Ahab. And whenever she married Ahab, she came over. And when she came over, she brought all of her false gods. She was a dominant worshiper of Baal. So she brought all the prophets of Baal, brought all of their immoral acts, all of their false teachings, all of their ungodliness, brought it right into Israel. And Ahab could not control her. He could not keep her at bay. She was smarter than him. She was more zealous than him. And she pretty well ran everything. She was zealous for the things of ungodliness and opposed to the things of God. Matter of fact, she was so opposed to the things of God that she set out to destroy and to kill every prophet of God that she could find. And as she did that, even that great prophet Elijah, whenever Jezebel threatened to have him killed the next day, you remember what he did? He took off and ran. <laughs> he found his way to the wilderness. You remember that? She was a wicked, wicked woman who was promoting ungodliness. 
and who was talking about things that had nothing to do with the word of God, the true word of God. She was so wicked that God foretold that when she died, she would not have the honor of being buried, but dogs would literally eat her bones and eat her up. And it's exactly what happened. Jezebel is that picture of that historical person who is leading immorality, leading the nation towards immorality, and an ungodly person. And what he's saying about this woman, he gives her the name Jezebel because she's this prophetess. She says that she speaks for God, even though she's not speaking the word of God. She's teaching and leading the bond servant. Those are the true servants of God. She's leading them to do ungodly things, causing them to commit immorality, causing them to eat things, sacrifice to idols, leading them away from God. That's the picture of who this woman is. Well, who is this Jezebel? Well, there might have been that particular person, but the Jezebel is really more about the church in the church age. The church that happens in the church age at this time. Remember, every one of these letters that are written to these churches describe the church from its very inception of the apostolic age to the Laodicean age, which we are in. It follows that, and right now you're in the fourth of those, which is called the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages of the church, the Dark Ages of society. Y'all read about that Western Civ, didn't you? You read about all of those things that happened. Well, this is the place where the church is. This is the church that has moved outside of the lordship of Jesus. You need to write that down. What did Jezebel do? Jezebel had moved herself out of the lordship and the leadership of her husband, the king. And this Jezebel has moved herself. It's the church who's moved itself outside of the lordship of Jesus. Now, you say, Brother Mac, how can you say that? Because the word woman there in, in the Greek text also means wife. It's the idea of the wife. And who is the bride of Christ? The church is the bride of Christ. And her, and her being the bride of Christ, she's supposed to be submissive to her groom or to her husband. She's supposed to do that. But whenever, whenever the bride decides that she knows more and she's going to live like she wants to and not be submissive to the one who is her husband and who is her Lord, it is the church outside of the lordship of Christ. How did that happen? Well, we talked about it. The most dangerous thing that ever happened to the church is when it got established. When Constantine took and adopted it and made it the national religion. And now all of a sudden it, it's began to be popular and, and it begins to put on the accolades and it begins to be something that's honored and thought well of. And the church at that, time, at that particular time moves away from the word of God. The church at that time is not based on the word of God. It begins based on something far different that we'll talk about. Whenever the church does that, when the church moves to that point and place, it is a church outside the lordship of Christ. What happened? Well, in the dark ages and in that particular time, the church now with all of its glory begins to develop and to teach what are called traditions. They're called the traditions. The traditions of the church. Now, those traditions added to Scripture, which you're not supposed to do. Amen? Those traditions took away from Scripture, which you're not supposed to do. Amen? 
And many times those scripture, those teachings or traditions were contrary to scripture, which it certainly should not do. And what happened to the church is it got away from the word of God. The word of God is that which is spoken by the son of God. And it got away from the word. Just like had happened prior to Jesus coming. Let's talk about biblical history for a minute. Do most of you remember that between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there are 400 years. You remember that? 400 years that are called the intertestamental period. It's 400 years when there is no word from God. Amos had foretold it that there will be a famine in the land. It is not a famine for food, but there will be a famine for the word of God. There will not be a word. And for 400 years, there was no word from God. It was broken whenever John the Baptist comes out and he begins to preach and proclaim that Jesus is coming. But for 400 years before that, there was no word from God. So what happens? What happens in that void where there's no word from God? What happens in that when the people move away from God? What happens is men begin to establish their traditions. In that 400 years, there were different sects who came about in the Jewish faith. Have you heard of any of those? One group of those was called Pharisees. You ever heard of Pharisees? They were established in that 400 years. There's another group. They're called the Sadducees. You ever heard of those guys? The Sadducees? They were established in that 400 years. There was another group called the Essenes. You probably haven't heard as much about them, but you certainly heard about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why have you heard so much about them? Because when Jesus comes on the scene, Who is it that he has to deal with most of the time? Who is it that is opposing him? Who is it that's questioning his authority to teach? Who is it that constantly asks him about their traditions and whether or not he abides by their tradition? They are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what happened to them is that their traditions became more important than the word of God became more important. And therefore, when Jesus, in his earthly ministry here, he battled them every step of the way. Because left without the word of God, they form traditions, and those traditions are not consistent with the word of God. That's exactly what happens to the church. What happened to the Jews in the intertestamental period happens to the church in this period. In the Thyatiran age, that's what happens to the church. The church moves away from the word of God. And when it moves away from the word of God, do you know what happens in the church? The church begins to establish its traditions. It establishes traditions. Those traditions are contrary to the word of God. Many times, certainly not consistent with the word of God. They begin to establish their traditions. Why and how does it happen? Because they got away from the word of God. They stopped abiding by the word of God. The the church was so established and and so high that they felt like they had authority to begin to state and do and establish whatever they wanted to do. And many of those things are contrary to the gospel of Christ and the teaching of the word of God. The very thing that happened to the Jews in the intertestamental period happened to the church. They began to establish their particular traditions. It happened in the Roman Catholics as well as the Eastern Orthodox. 
They began to establish traditions, and those traditions were as important as the Bible. You got that? And in some cases, they were considered more important than the Bible. Why and how did it happen? Away from the word of God. That's what he's talking about when he says Jezebel, the prophetess, the church has elevated itself up to speak supposedly for God about the things of God. But Jesus says it's not of God, it's of Satan. It says it a few verses down. It's of Satan, it is not of God. It's leading people not to me, but away from me. He's talking about the traditions of the church. And that happened in this particular era. And you might say, well, Brother Matt, what are you talking about the traditions of the church? I'm glad you asked. Let me just take a few of those traditions and show you how they conflict and are contrary to the Word of God. For instance, in the Roman Catholic life, there's the belief that there's papal infallibility. Papal infallibility. In other words, when the Pope speaks, he is infallible. I'm going to tell you, there's only one who's infallible who ever walked on the face of this earth. you understand that? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only other thing that's infallible is the word of God that God gave to us, the scripture. There is no man, I don't care what his title is, that's considered infallible, but they consider the Pope infallible. What about the aspect of baptismal regeneration? We had people baptized today, but not a one of them were saved because they went in that water. They were saved because they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And they went into that water to symbolize what Jesus did in their life. But that is not what the church established. They established the fact that through the very water baptism, it washes away sin. There is no water that washes away sin. It's the shed blood of the Lamb of God that washes away sin. What about other traditions? Traditions like purgatory. Have you ever heard of purgatory? I'm not going to purgatory. I'm going to heaven. And you're either going to heaven or hell. You're not going to purgatory. Purgatory was established as a tradition as a halfway spot. You're not good enough to get to heaven and you're not bad enough to go to hell. So you get to go halfway and if you get enough people to to pray for you and give indulgences and do all they can, then maybe you'll get to heaven. That is nowhere in the word of God. That is tradition. What about the aspect of indulgences? Indulgences, if you have if you have done temporal sin, not, not those kinds of sins that are fatal sins, but if you do temporal sin, you can give indulgence. Indulgence is you work harder, you do some good things, or in their time, it was pay money. If you had enough money, you could get out of purgatory. <laughs> if you paid enough money, you wouldn't have to go through there because those were called indulgences. I'll tell you what, there are no indulgences. If Jesus' blood is not sufficient, there's nothing sufficient. It's not going to be your good deeds or my good deeds that are going to get us there. But that's what the traditions say. What about the aspect of confession to priest? We don't have to confess our sins to priest. Amen? We have a great high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are priests unto our God. And we have the opportunity to go right to him because he shed his blood. And we can go to the mercy seat. Right into the holy of holies. You understand that? Now, I'm not opposed to somebody getting counsel or all those kind of things, but I don't have any man who can forgive me of sin except Jesus because he paid the price for my sin. Or what about a thing like Mary's assumption? You know, you ever heard of Mary's assumption? Mary's assumption is the idea that Mary did not die because she was holy and without sin. Because she was holy and without sin, 
God just took her like Enoch up to heaven. She didn't die. Well, I'm here to tell you, Mary is a great woman. God chose her of all the women of all the ages to have his son. I will never criticize Mary, but she is a sinner just like the rest of us. Amen? (laughs) She was born of Adam, and Jesus had to wash her and cleanse her of her sin just like he did anybody else. And she didn't go like Enoch there. She died just like everybody else. Those are just a few. I mean, they just keep going on and on. Now, you're going to come up to me, some of you say, why are you criticizing the Catholic? I'm not criticizing anybody. Baptists have their own tradition sometimes. I'm saying anything that is a tradition that has authority or has had more importance than the Word of God, it is wrong. The only thing that matters is what Scripture. The Reformers said sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone. It's Scripture alone. What does God's Word say? What does God's Word say? And if we abide by God's Word, we'll be fine. Now, I wish I could just tell you they established traditions, but it goes a little step further than that. When the church was in all of its power in this particular age and people opposed their traditions, it would cost them their life. They'd quickly be excommunicated or they would be killed. Literally millions of people out of just particular groups, millions of people were killed by the church. Because why? Because they didn't believe that Scripture ought to be in the hands of individual people. It was the church to interpret it. Or they didn't accept that you are saved by grace through faith and you don't have to have the church. Or any of the, or, they, they, or you didn't believe in transubstantiation where they believe that the, that the bread and the cup literally becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. If you didn't believe that, you were killed. And not a one of those things in the Word of God is the tradition of the church. Can you understand why Jesus would be concerned? Can you understand why Jesus would talk about the Jezebel and the prophet and the teachings that are contrary to the Word of God? Well, let me show you how good Jesus is. Look what it says in verse 21. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Let me tell you how good Jesus is. I don't care how wicked you are, how ungodly you are, the worst person in this world, Jesus will give you an opportunity to repent. And if you'll change your heart and change your mind and change your direction, he will forgive you. He would have forgiven Jezebel. That's the Jesus we serve. He is full of grace and mercy. But what did he say? I offered her opportunity, but she did not and would not repent. So what does he say is his judgment upon that. Listen to what it says in verse 22. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to... To your deeds. He's talking about the judgment that's going to come upon the church and the Thyatiran age. And my friend, did it ever come? Go read history. All I'm telling you is history. All right? You know what happened to the church at that particular time? The Roman Empire has grown so weak it can't even guard itself. And the barbarians from the north who care nothing about God, they are heathen. They care nothing about God. They come into Europe and they come into Asia and they take charge and they put the church 
under rule. And they, and they squinched the church and what it wants to do. They have never seen that kind of battle they had against the barbarians. But that's not all. They have the Muslims from the east now who are coming as well. For see, during this period of time, I know you read about the, the Crusades, didn't you? And what were the Crusades about? The Crusades were that the church of Rome and the Roman government would send over there to Israel and, and to the Holy Land. And when the Muslims would take over the Holy Land or the Holy City, they'd send in the knights and everybody to cast them out and to free them from the Muslims. And the first Crusades were all about the Holy Land. But you know what happened? They couldn't hold the Holy Land And finally, the Muslims came on into Asia and came on into Europe and began to put the church in bay. Now, no longer the crusades about going over there, crusades about what's happening here because the Muslims are taking over the church and the church area. Well, there's a third thing. And I know you had it. I know you've heard it. It says right here, verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence. How many of you ever remember reading about the Black Plague? The Black Plague, or it's called the Black Death. Do you know where that took place? You know what it, took? it took place in this era, in this time. The culmination of it, the highest time was in 1347 through 1351. Do you realize what that plague, we're not talking, it, it's one of the worst things that ever happened in this world. It is estimated that between 70 and 200 million people died. In Europe and Asia. In a four-year span, the population of Europe divided 50%. 50% of the people living after four years in Europe. It took them 200 years to regain the population they had before the Black Plague. And the Black Plague comes in this era when God says that pestilence will judge the church. I know what some of you say, oh, my God wouldn't do that. God doesn't have to do anything, friend. Let me tell you you the way things work. Satan hates your guts, and he hates the world, and if he was given free reign, he'd kill every one of us today where we're standing, and he would cause pestilence to be upon us. The fact that we are safe and secure and blessed is the protection of Almighty God. All it takes to change is for God to just take his hand off. God just to remove his hand, and Satan will wreak havoc. You understand that? And basically, in regard to this, the church is not repenting. The church is not being right. And Jesus basically just takes his hand out and pestilence wipes out 50% of the population. Just like he said. Just like he said. Well, there's a promise. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, underline these words, who do not hold this teaching... And who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Here's a great thing to know. There's always a remnant. Amen. There's always a remnant of faith. Even though the masses go one direction, there's always people who believe in God, who love his word, who try to abide by his word, how to be pleasing to him. And he says, there are those of you in the midst of this who have held to that. He says, just hold on what you got. Just hold on to what you got. Because he said, if if you will hold on, there will be no further burden placed on you. And he said for this, hold on what you got because I'm coming. Notice that. Circle those words right there. Don't miss that. In verse 25, he says, until I come. He's coming. 
He's coming. He's promised he's coming. That's talking about the rapture of the church. This is not to the world. This is not the Jews. This is the church. Jesus is coming. And he tells them, you just hold on. And what was his promise to those who held on? Look at verse 26 and following. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. First promise, he said, listen, for those of you who hang on, this is what I give you. I'm going to give you the rod or the scepter of leadership, of rulership, of authority. Now think about that. He said, if you hold on, I'm going to give you a rod or a scepter of leadership. And he gives that in our hand that we'll rule over the nations. Now, who's ultimately going to be ruling over the nations? Jesus is. We just get to participate. Kind of reminds me of a little preschooler who'd you give them a little scepter that hold? And when they'd stand there and all the people who are under their rulership, all that, they're just sitting there and they're not really paying attention to that preschooler. But right behind them, right behind them is the king. And he's got his scepter too. And so when the little boy does whatever he does with his scepter, the king just does the same and everybody responds. Amen? God knows better than let any of us be an authority over much. But he's basically saying, I'm going to give you a share in it. You're going to get an opportunity to rule where I rule because I've been given that authority and I'm going to share that with you. But that's not all. He said, and also, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Well, who is the morning star? Ultimately, it's Jesus, amen? He's the bright and shining morning star. So he says, I'm going to give you the morning star. But the morning star is something else other than just Jesus. The morning star is that light that appears after it is darkest of all. When it's darkest of all, that dawning light is the morning star. And you know when it comes? Right after it's darkest of all. And this is what Jesus is saying. Listen, I'm going to give you all that I am. And I'm going to give it to you when you think it cannot get any darker. When it can't get any bleaker. When it can't get any harder. I'm showing up. Now, I want to tell you, I don't know about you. In my, in my life, I've had that experience. I've had that experience in my life. I, I've had times when I thought there was no way it could get any darker, any bleaker, and Jesus shows up. Amen? He shows up. And he promised to those who would hold on, to those who would keep the faith, to those who would believe the word of God, to those who would be faithful to him, that you will rule one day with me, and the morning star will show up just in the nick of time. And he closes, Who has an ear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the word for us? Well, a couple of words. One is this. If you don't know Jesus, you need to get to know him. <laughs> if you've never repented of your sin, you need to repent. Here's the good news. He'll accept it. He'll forgive you. He'll adopt you into his family. That's how good he is. Another thing is for us to hold to the word of God. Amen. That's why you need, to, you need the word of God. What did the psalmist say? That I'll hide your word in my heart that I what? That I might not sin against you. The word of God is so important. And if you don't have the word of God, then you're in in danger that traditions and all kind of junk will fill your life. You don't need that. You need the word of God. So be in the word of God. 
and a word of comfort for you. If you feel like you're in the midst of the battle, hang on, amen. He's a coming. <laughs> hang on, he's coming. He knows exactly where you are. You'll rule with him one day. And also, you'll have the fullness of him right after that darkest hour. A word of comfort. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.